So we're in the fourth week of a series, and uh, the, the series is the gospel in the last place that you would expect to find it. And I want to welcome everybody who joins us uh, by our podcast or by our City Church app. The place that most people would least expect to find the gospel in the Bible would be in the Old Testament, and specifically in the book of Exodus. And yet, as we've been seeing throughout this series, we're finding the gospel all over the book of Exodus, which speaks to the consistency of the Bible, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, and the beauty of the gospel. If you have a Bible this morning, I'd like for you to turn with me in it back to the book of Exodus, chapter 12, and we're going to begin reading from verse 1 in just a moment. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. And you may remember uh, from last week that God had commanded Moses to go to Pharaoh and to speak on God's behalf, and that he was going to say to Pharaoh, he was going to say, what was he going to say? He was going to say, Bingo, you guys are good. By the fourth week, you guys have gotten that. That's really good. Let my people go so that they may worship me. It's not just let my people go. It's let my people go so that they may worship me because that's where real freedom is found in the ability to worship God, the one God, the creator God, the saving God. Okay, That's where freedom is found. But Pharaoh refused, and he asked, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And what we saw last week was that all of the plagues that, uh, that came on Egypt were an answer to that very question. This morning as we re-enter the story, there's only one plague left, and it is the most painful, and it is the most terrifying plague of all. And we're going to start reading from verse 1, and I just warn you in advance, we're going to read a lot of verses, 13 verses here together. Uh, you don't have to read them out loud together, but we're going to read them. And it's a little lengthy, but it's really worth it. And you know, I'm going to ask you to do something that seems to some of you maybe kind of old school, but I'd like for you to stand with me as we read this passage of Scripture. Exodus chapter 12, and I'll begin reading at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Verse 7, then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Don't leave any of it until morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt. Strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all of the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. 
The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This is a critically important passage in Scripture. It is the institution of what is known as the Passover celebration. The Jewish people throughout history, even, to, uh, even up to today, celebrate every spring the Passover, which is central to the identity, to their identity as Jewish people. But it's also central to Christianity for reasons that I want to explain in just a little bit this morning. I want to take a moment, though, before we do that, I want to take a moment... And I just want to think about, I want us to think about the gravity of this situation that the people of Israel are in at this very moment in the text. And I also want to think about the apparent foolishness of what God is telling them. All of Egypt, including the Jewish people, are on the eve of the single most deadly night in all of human history. By morning, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of dead men and boys and cattle are going to be found in Egypt. God is about to bring judgment on Egypt. His eternal justice is about to come down on Egypt. And this judgment will bring the most powerful political and military force in the world at at that time to its knees. This judgment is going to slice through Egypt like a hot knife through butter. And as a result of it, Pharaoh and all of Egypt are going to beg Israel to leave. And in fact, they're going to give them silver and gold as they leave. That's how significant this is. Now, I want to just be a little creative as we think about this. And I just want to, let's just fast forward this event to today. I think most people would agree that at least at this moment, the United States is the most powerful government and the most powerful military force in the world today. I want you to imagine the power that would be required to bring the United States to its knees in just one night with just one blow. That's what's about to happen in this text. That's the gravity of this situation. I want to think, too, about the apparent foolishness of what God says to the people of Israel. Israel, what is it that's going to protect you from this devastating power, this devastating judgment, from this ultimate power in the universe? What can you hide behind? What great force, what great human invention can spare you from this power? What great technical achievement will spare you from this judgment? And the answer is there is none. Here is what will protect you from this terrible judgment that is about to come. A lamb. That's right. Not NASA, not Silicon Valley, not, not, Pen, not the Pentagon, not Bill Gates, not uh, Elon Musk, but a lamb. A lamb will protect you from this ultimate power in the universe. 
Just a lamb. Kill a lamb. Eat it with your family. Put its blood on the doorposts of your house. And you will be protected from this devastating power. How foolish does that sound to you? Like if somebody told you that, like if you knew, if you were like on the eve of this horrible night that was to come, and somebody said to you, well, you know what will protect you from this power? It's just a, a lamb. How hard would you laugh if they, or how hard would you cry if you thought that a lamb was your only hope? What's the deal with that? Why, what's the deal? Why a lamb? Why, that seems kind of random. Why, why a lamb? Well, to understand why a lamb, you've got to put this into the context of a whole Bible. The first time that the idea of a lamb saving someone shows up is in Genesis chapter 22. Now, you don't have to turn there. I'll just kind of I'll give you the story here. God says to a guy by the name of Abraham, He says, Abraham, go up this mountain, and I want you to take the son that you love, Isaac, your firstborn son, and I want you to offer him up as a sacrifice to me. Now, I realize that that probably sounds terribly barbaric to you and me, but that's only because we really don't understand the culture in which Abraham lived. I want you to remember that, and we talked about this before, but his was a culture that honored the tradition of primogenitor, which means, of course, that the firstborn son was central to the hopes and the dreams of his family. The firstborn son received uh, the largest portion of the wealth of the family at the father's death. So as the firstborn son went, so went the rest of the family. He carried enormous responsibility on his shoulders. As I said, he inherited the largest portion of the family wealth but he also inherited their debts. And in fact, if you were to read through the Mosaic Law, you would notice over and over in the Mosaic Law, God keeps saying to Moses, he keeps saying, all of the firstborn sons in Israel, they're mine. All of the firstborn in Israel, all of the firstborn boys in Israel are mine, unless they're redeemed with a temple offering. So all of the firstborn sons had to be redeemed with a temple offering. And what God was saying as he repeats this over and over is that there's a debt that every family on the earth owes God because of our sin. Every family, my family, your family, there's a debt every one of us owes God because of our sin. And that debt has to be redeemed. So Abraham wouldn't have thought that this was barbaric. Now, had God said to him, you know, Abraham, take your wife and go up to the mountain and sacrifice her uh, as an offering to him, he would have thought, that's horribly barbaric. That would not have made any sense to him. But the fact that he said, take your firstborn son, that made perfect sense to Abraham. On the way up the the mountain, as Abraham takes his son Isaac uh, up this mountain, Isaac says to his dad, actually, he, he he says, Dad, the... The, the wood is here for the sacrifice and, and, and the fire, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And here's Abraham's response. It's in Genesis chapter 22, uh, verse 8. You can go ahead and put that up. There it goes. God himself, Abraham says to his son Isaac, he said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Now what Abraham is saying when he says this, what he's saying is, he's saying, son, I hope with all of my heart 
that you won't have to die to pay the debt for my sins. I hope with all of my heart that God will provide a lamb so that my lamb will not have to die. That was Abraham's hope, and that was his faith. Abraham actually prepares to sacrifice his firstborn son. And just as he's pulling the knife up, at the last minute, God says to him, he says, Abraham, don't do it. Don't, don't do it. But here's what's interesting. God doesn't provide a lamb. He does provide a ram, which they end up sacrificing, but not as a sin sacrifice, more as a, thank, uh, a thanks offering to God. But he doesn't provide a lamb. And the question is, it's, it's like, wait, 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 wait. There is this debt that has to be paid, and God has the right to be paid for it, but it was not paid. And so what you leave that story asking is, wait, where, where is the lamb? Where's the lamb? And then you fast forward here to Exodus chapter 12. And again, God is claiming, he's claiming the firstborn of all of Egypt. He's even claiming the firstborn of the Jews. And he says, the only hope, the only hope for you is the lamb. Eat its body, put its blood on the doorposts, and all of your firstborns will be saved. Now there's two important concepts that are introduced uh, in this story. And the first one is, I want you guys to get these. The first one is this. It's that everyone, everyone is equally deserving of judgment. Now, if you were to read on in this passage, it comes just a little bit later, you would see that God says to the people of Israel, he says to the Jews, he says, um, put the blood, you know, on the doorpost, but he says, do not go out of your houses until this thing is over. Don't go out until morning, until this thing is over, okay? Hide behind the blood of the lamb on your doorposts, and your firstborns will not die. That's what, that's, that's what he tells them. And here's what God is saying in that. He's saying that God is no, his judgment is no respecter of persons. Yeah, Israel was God's chosen people, and the Egyptians were the idol worshipers. But if even the people of Israel were to step out from behind the blood, they could not face God's judgment. The only thing that could save them was the blood of the Lamb. You see what I'm saying? Nobody can step out from behind that blood. Like they couldn't step out and say, well, I'm one of God's chosen people. I don't, we really don't have to worry about it. They couldn't do that. They had to hide behind the blood. Now, if you think about that, here's, here's the significance of that. What it means is that you, that I, none of us, we can't hide behind our pedigree. We can't hide behind our ethnicity. We can't hide behind um, our doctrine. We can't hide behind our prayers. We can't hide behind our good works. We can't hide behind our ethics. We can't hide behind our beliefs. We can't hide behind our denominations. We can't hide behind our occupations. We can't hide behind our education. We can't hide behind our socioeconomic status. There's nothing that can save us from God's judgment. Because everyone is equally deserving of judgment. There is nothing that you can hide behind except the blood of a lamb. That's what he's saying. 
And so if you think about that, think, just think about the significance of that. Both the policeman and the criminal that the policeman puts behind bars are equally deserving of God's judgment. The centerfold in this month's issue of Playboy and I, with all of my Bible knowledge and my occupation as a pastor and all of my prayers and all of my doctrine and all of my works, we're both equally deserving of judgment. That means that you and the ISIS soldier who beheaded the American journalist this last week or so are equally deserving of judgment, which means that there is no way to boast. There is no way to oppress anyone. There is no finger pointing at someone else. There's no looking down your nose at anyone else. In yourself, you are no better than the Egyptians. And I want to give you one way that that applies to us as a church, very specifically. As we host this event called the Great Porn Debate coming up on October the 17th. We don't host this event because we're mad at anyone or because we think we're better than anyone else. We recognize as a church that whether pornography is your sin struggle or not, that we have nothing to boast about. We have nothing that we can hide behind other than the blood of the Lamb. And so with every person who comes to that event, every person, we're going to be caring and loving and merciful and kind in our treatment of those people. All of the people there, including Ron Jeremy and those people who come that respect and admire Ron Jeremy, they're going to be treated with the same kindness that we treat anyone else. Because what do we have to hide behind? Nothing but the blood of the Lamb. Everyone is equally deserving of judgment. That's one of the things that we, that we come up with through this story. There, there is like this radical uh, egalitarianism that comes through in this passage, this idea that, you know, don't step out from behind the blood. Don't step out from behind it. That we're all equally sinners, equally deserving of judgment. The second, the second uh, concept that comes out from this that I want you to understand is that only an acceptable substitute can save you from this judgment. In every home in Israel, the firstborn son would know that the lamb that he killed and the lamb that he ate and whose blood was on the doorpost was the only reason he was alive. The next morning, there would either be a dead lamb or a dead son. The lamb paid the debt, so the son didn't have to. But I don't know if you noticed this. I don't know if you, I don't know if you, if you paid attention to this or not. But the lamb couldn't just be any lamb. Do you remember this? Exodus chapter 12, verse 5. It said, uh, go ahead, put it up there on the screen. It says, the animals that you choose, in other words, the land that you choose, must be year-old males without defect. In other, words, in other words, they had to be only a certain kind of lamb was an acceptable substitute, one with no defects, one with no flaws. It had to be perfect because that was the most valuable lamb, kind of lamb. Now, as I said earlier, every year, the Jewish people were to celebrate the Passover. 
And they still do every year. Every year they sit around a table and usually the father presides over the meal and he explains what everything on the table represents. And the meal consists of a few things. It has, um, you probably read about some of these in the text. It has, uh, the meal will have on the table, there will be these bitter herbs that represent the bitterness of the Jewish people's slavery in Egypt. And then it includes bread that the father, you know, there would be bread that the father breaks that represents the affliction that their ancestors suffered so that the Jewish people could be free. And he will say, this is the bread of our affliction, of our ancestors' affliction. Then, of course, there's roasted lamb that represents the lamb that had to be slain. And then there, um, there is wine on the table that represents the blood of the lamb that had to be put on the doorposts of their homes. And every year they do that. Now I want you to, just in your minds, I want you to fast forward. We're going to fast forward into the New Testament. There is this moment in the New Testament. It's on the night that Jesus is betrayed and it's the night before he is crucified. And uncoincidentally, It's during the Passover. Jesus and his disciples are preparing to eat the Passover meal together. And suddenly Jesus stands up at the table to preside over the meal, which would have made sense to the disciples because they're like, well, you know, we're his family and, and he's acting as our father. But what comes next will absolutely blow their minds. This this celebration that they have celebrated all of their lives and and, and it has been handed down through all the years that was commanded from God to do in a certain way. When Jesus stands up and speaks, he deviates from the Passover script. First, They expect him right off to take the bread and to say, this is the bread of our affliction. Our ancestors suffered so that we could be free and then break the bread. That's what they expect. But instead, here's what he says. This bread is my body. And what he's saying is that this bread represents my affliction for the ultimate freedom that I am going to give you. Not just freedom from physical and economic and governmental bondage, but I'm going to give you freedom from sin and death. So that blows them away, that he refers to this bread not as their affliction, but his own affliction. And then he takes the cup, and he says, this cup is my blood. And that blows them away. And finally, as Jesus and his disciples look down on the meal, there's the bread, there's the wine, there are the bitter herbs... There is no lamb. Where is the lamb? Okay, now parenthesis. Parenthesis. Early in the gospel of John, in the New Testament, John is baptizing people, and he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus just coming toward him. And John says, he says, Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now back to the table. Back to the table. Where is the lamb? 
Where is the lamb? The lamb was at the table, not on the table. Because Jesus was saying, I am the lamb. That all of the references to the lamb uh, in the book of Exodus were pointing. I'm the lamb. God was saying uh, to Abraham, he was saying, Abraham, the only reason your firstborn didn't have to die was because my firstborn is going to die. He will pay the debt that your firstborn, Isaac, owed me and that all of humanity owed me. He paid it. That's why Isaac didn't have to die. He takes away the sins of the world. He is the lamb. He's the lamb that all of the references to lambs were pointing to. He's the ultimate lamb who gives the ultimate freedom to my people. And so the Passover meal is not only central to the Jewish people, but it's central to Christianity in a revised, or maybe you could even say a fulfilled way, in that when we celebrate it, we recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb and the freedom that he gives us is the freedom from sin and death. And there you have it. Once again, the consistency of the Bible, the supremacy of Christ in the last place that you would expect to find it in the book of Exodus. Now what about the beauty of the gospel? Because I've said all through this series, I want you to get the consistency of the message of the Bible and I want you to see the supremacy of Christ. But what about the beauty of the gospel? What about the beauty of the gospel? Where is that here? Well, think about this. Because the gospel says that you can't hide behind your ethnicity or your discipline or your prayer life or your denomination or your code of conduct or anything else except the blood of the Savior. A correct understanding of the gospel creates a sense of humility that no other religion or no other philosophy in the world can. Every religion leads to pride. Follow this code of conduct, whatever that code of conduct is. And you will be saved. And so you're able to be proud because you followed that code of conduct and someone else didn't. Or every philosophy, every philosophy leads to pride. Know this, live by this, and you will be enlightened over other people. And so see, there's the pride again. Only the gospel leads to humility. Regardless of what you know, regardless of how you live, you are deserving of judgment. And nothing that you or I might hide behind can save you, can save me, except the blood of the slain Lamb of God. Now that brings humility, if you understand that. The consistency of the Bible, the supremacy of Christ, and the beauty of the gospel all in the lamb that was slain to save you from judgment. And Lord Jesus Christ, we bow before you at at your cross and we acknowledge, we celebrate today that you are the lamb of God. We have nothing that we can hide behind. No reason to ever look down our nose at any, any person we can do is hide behind your blood we thank you Lord Jesus 
We worship you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray.